Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. I want to go to John Farrow with Nora Rabini because John's got a great insight here to get the Bitcoin uh, discussion started. I did want to mention that the president has tweeted twice this morning, 45 minutes ago and 30 minutes ago. In one of them, he makes a clear distinction between the leadership and investigators of the Federal Bureau of Investigation and the Justice Department versus later on in a lengthy tweet, rank and file are great people. So that seems to be the tone of the president this morning. John, you've got a great insight with Dr. Rubini on Bitcoin. Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of conversation today about the price action. Of course, there should be. We're down 13.5% to 7860 But I think the conversation on Wall Street is whether we institutionalize this stuff too quickly, put it on the exchanges too quickly without enough thought. Professor, do you think that is the case? It is. Uh, first of all, for a long time, the regulators were asleep at the wheel where all this scam was occurring. I mean, think about the ICOs. These are just things that are created to skirt completely securities laws. You know, you invest in a company, you get debt or equity. In this case, what you get? A plastic token that gives you rights on nothing. This should be illegal, but thousands of ICOs have occurred. So for many, many months, they were asleep at the wheel and then even allowed these uh, derivatives uh, futures being created. Luckily now, the God religion have said that these ETF that they wanted to create that were essentially going investing into liquid cryptocurrency would not be allowed. But it's been too little too late so far. They put massive margin requirements on them <clears throat> to trade futures north of 40%. But given the price action of the last month, you wonder whether north of 40% was enough, mm -hmm. Professor. Yeah, it was not enough. You know, Bitcoin has fallen in value by 60%, you know, in six weeks. That is volatility of 20, 30% per day has fallen 30% in last month. 15% overnight, uh, you need much higher margin requirements. I mean, there's a typical situation which a bunch of insiders pump it higher and higher. It was outright past manipulation. And every sucker was a retail investor, bought at the peak between Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year at 20,000, and they lost their shirt. This was really a scandal. This was outright criminal manipulation. So There's strong evidence that the price of Bitcoin has been manipulated. So what is that evidence that the price of Bitcoin has been manipulated? What are you uh, looking at specifically? Well, there are several things. There have been some econometric studies that suggest that these uh, alternative currency teeter, that there's a fiat currency that is printing $2 billion of money out of nowhere. Fiat is not mined. Teeter, USDD, has been used to prop up the value of Bitcoin in the last few months. This econometric study suggests that without this manipulation, the price of Bitcoin will be down up to 80%. There's another study published on the Journal of Monetary Economic that suggests that when the price went from 150 to 1500, there was outright again pump and dump and manipulation. There's clear evidence well, of manipulation. What's so important here is as sacred as the bid and the asks. And whether it's Drew Fudenberg or Alvin Roth, the Nobel laureate, in every advanced economics textbook, there's a thing called auction theory. Dr. Rubini, I'm, I'm not editorializing. I'm simply stating a fact. I don't see transparent bid-ask processes in Bitcoin. Do you? No. Uh, there is no transparency of any sort. There are lots of exchanges that are in offshore financial center. 
Many of them have not been audited. There is this Bitfinex that owns Teeter. Teeter has been creating money literally out of What'd nowhere. What did you say, Teeter? A... What is this? This is Turkish Teeter? No, no, no. It, it's a currency. Tether. 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 Teeter. Teeter. What are you doing to the professor this morning? But I'm no, studying. But is there... I'm excusing. No, I'm studying a tell. No, honestly, it's the biggest scam ever because they claim that they have about $2 billion of money backing the one-to-one fixed exchange between this Tether and the US dollar. There is absolutely no evidence of it. Bitfinex, that is this criminal exchange, is controlling this other company, Tether, that is creating money out of nowhere, pretending that it's backed by real dollars. They cannot have converted them back into real dollar, and they've been using it for the last few months to push up the price of Bitcoin. Really? It's really a criminal activity. If you mispronounce Tether, that's okay. I'm trying to learn Italian. It's my Italian what is accent. it about Professor, honestly, honestly, Tom Key gives us foreigners such a hard time. G-L-I in Italian. It's not Gli. It's Gli. Glee, Glee, Glee. Can, yeah. can we do this in a commercial I've been the commercial break? For 30 and, years, and not, and not but subject my our listeners Italian to this. accent hasn't changed. It's like Eric Kissinger with his German accent, even after 60 years in the US. And we love it, Nuria. I, I actually changed my accent and I cultivate my accent. I don't want to lose it. Nuria Rabini, it's always Either. great to catch up with you. Uh, Rabini Macro Associates Chairman and NYU Stern School of Business Professor. I can tell you in the commercial break, Professor Rabini is going to give Mr. Tom Keane a very, very hard time. With your academics, seriously, Alan Kruger, as we look to this jobs day, the number one conundrum I see is where are traditional jobs for a traditional America that's not technologically savvy, that doesn't have elite service sector, multi-language abilities like young John Farrow. What do we do with a part of America that just wants an old line job? You know, I think we should take a historical perspective. The manufacturing jobs were not great jobs before they were unionized. But they kept a certain kind of American employed. They did. They certainly did. And the service sector jobs could do that too if we worked to make them higher paying jobs. If we worked to make them uh, jobs that, uh, where, where workers had more representation, where workers could bargain for higher wages. Uh, it didn't just happen automatically in manufacturing. It happened because the workers organized, because public policy right. supported it. And yet we have the minimum wage today stuck where it was in 2009. So I think it's a matter of choices. And, 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 and John Farrell, this was, as Alan Kruger mentioned earlier, this was the lead idea of Angus Deaton in Davos, the laureate from uh, Princeton, that we just don't know except the available evidence which is the deunionization of the nation. Is there a solution here, Professor? And what is it? You've talked before about the idea that, say, just quite simply, if you work for one fast food company, you should be able to go to the next fast food company without a barrier to entry, without a contract that says you can't do that. That seems like one small solution to one part of the country. What are the other solutions? Well, there should be some things that are really non-controversial. To the extent that employers have been using practices to prevent competition in the labor market, to suppress wages and mobility, we should use our tools to prevent that. And we have the tools. Antitrust, for example. Antitrust typically doesn't take into account the impact on the labor market. But when we have more and more mergers and there's less competition for workers, that suppresses wages. 
non-compete agreements. 20% of the workforce is currently covered by a non-compete agreement, which makes it hard for them to find a better paying job. Uh, they have uh, really run amok. They're unnecessary in many of those cases. Uh, workers uh, don't uh, know what they're signing on to. Um, so there are some easy solutions, and some states have been have been pursuing them. Now, I don't know if they're sufficient, but they're certainly a step in the right direction. Listening to you, though, Professor, it seems like there's solutions both in terms of government intervention and actually just liberalizing labor markets properly, enabling the mobility of labor to actually function efficiently, because that's not happening right now. Is it a mix of both ideas, the intervention and the liberalism as well? Yes. Yeah, I, I think... You know, if we can look at what some other countries have done, which haven't had a, nearly a severe problem. And as Angus Deaton and Ann Case have shown, the U.S. is really unique in terms of uh, 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 middle-income people seeing their life expectancy decline. Um, so we, we, we know that other okay. countries have managed to <clears throat> prevent the worst of these problems. Okay, we mention Germany often when we do that. I want you to speak, and the conservatives and the Republicans think you're a— died in the world Democrat, flaming liberal from Princeton, et cetera. I want you to speak to the people that feel there's an individualistic power, a Lockean power in this nation of the individual to do better and to good. And yet the pendulum, some would say, has swung too far. How do you address the historical pendulum of labor? Because we can all agree we don't want gunfire in the streets of Detroit or Chicago or wherever there was labor unrest. 70 years ago. Well, I think there are many benefits to society when workers have a voice at work. A lot of people disagree with that statement. That's, I guess, my point. Well, I think the labor unions have not done a very good job marketing themselves. Um, I think there's a bowling alone phenomenon where people are not joining groups the way that they used to, perhaps because of time pressures. Uh, I don't think the union movement has done such a great job attracting the growth okay. in the workforce among women. Just as in a, Mr. Bezos, we know you listen every morning. What would happen if we unionized people filling cardboard boxes at Amazon? Speak. Uh, I think the net benefits would be positive. You know, I think that's what we've seen historically. That would be a positive for Jeff Bezos. No, not necessarily for Jeff Bezos, but you'd Jeff be, Bezos is doing just fine. You'd be unionizing a lot of robots, wouldn't you, Tom King? Because no, I'm not sure how many on. people are actually filling those boxes. Well, but but come on, this is important. Let me get this up here. I can do this on the Bloomberg, folks. Instantly, I'm sorry, they got 566,000 bodies. Some of those are filling cardboard boxes. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think if they were unionized, they would be paid better. I think they would feel better about their jobs. They'd have more fair treatment. They'd have a system of arbitration if they felt harassed or they felt that uh, the law had been violated. Then take the company side, take the Bezos side. He goes, no, we're not doing that. Well, a lot of companies have been saying that. And that's one of the reasons why we see profits at historically high levels. That's one of the reasons why we see profit share of national income at historically high levels. Well, let's, let's think of some economies that have a really strong union presence and then think about how bad the labor market has performed over the last decade. I can think of many, and most of them reside in Europe. And guess what? There are so many European politicians that want to break up that mix. When we use this word union, I think it just scares so many people, Professor. They think of France. They think of Italy. They think of things not functioning properly. They think of things shutting down. They think of strikes. They think of AC Milan. They think of AC Milan. (laughs) How do you reintroduce the idea that actually unions are positive for the American economy? Well, you could also think of Germany which has done quite well. Uh, You can think of Canada. 
Uh, you know, I think that we need a new form of organization in the labor market. I think right. we need new institutions. When, when unions eroded and only 7% of private sector workers are now in labor unions, the institutions that filled the void were more inefficient. Occupational licensing. 30% of workers are required to have a license to do things like wash someone's hair at a beauty parlor. And that is restricting competition right. and hurting our economy. So I think we need to rethink, fundamentally rethink, the way workers right. are represented at work. And it may be that the old form of unions is not the optimal, but I think some form yeah. of representation uh, would be beneficial. John Farrell, continue the conversation here. But, you know, we've had a huge response to today's show. Thank you to Dr. Rubini for that. And also thank you to Dr. Kruger. Rubini didn't get this email. We thank this for coming in over the transom. Kruger is a socialist who believes each individual in the U.S. should get helicopter money. So why don't you continue with there, Chad? <laughs> so I, don't pass the buck to me. The professor can answer for himself. <laughs> but that's the zeitgeist that's out there. That gets you to 7% union employment. Well, I think we just have to look at results. Are we happy with an economy where, as Angus Deaton showed, the U.S. is now responsible for a tremendous amount of the poverty in the world? You know, is that the kind of country that we want? Uh, I think... We create more opportunity if we have a more level playing field. And what I'm worried about, John asked earlier about, is it going to get worse before it gets better? The tremendous rise in inequality that we've seen is feeding on itself. The gap in opportunities between children just by happenstance or born to disadvantaged families is tremendous compared to those who are born in the top. And that's not good for our country in the long run. We're, we're not training the people the way we should. And I think in the long run, that's going to really hurt us. Professor Alan Kruger, really appreciate your time. Princeton University Thank you so much. economics professor. And now we welcome on Bloomberg Radio all of you worldwide, coast to coast, across all of America, and on Bloomberg Television. William Gross of Janice Henderson joins us right now. Uh, Bill, we finally see good wage growth, and critically, we see a revision upward to wage, wage growth as well. Will that be the breakout condition that gets us to the 3% yield you've talked about is a critical point for the 10-year? Oh, yeah, I think it is, Tom. Um, you know, if you factor in 2.9% YOY wage growth and you throw in a 1% uh, which I think is probably normal to expect going forward. You know, you've got 2% uh, unit labor costs and uh, hopefully 2% uh, inflation doesn't even factor in the, you know, the weak dollar over the past 12 months. And so, yes, I, th I think it basically means that we're approaching that magical two right. at which the, the Fed will continue, let's put it this way, will continue to raise rates. Well said, and I know they're continue. We know, and you know, we were ultra accommodative with Vice Chairman Fisher. We've moved up, but we can't even get an inflation-targeted, inflation-reduced Fed funds target rate to get to zero. Are real rates too low, and is the Fed behind? Well, it depends, I guess, on, on which real rate you're talking about. You know, the 10-year the real rate is about uh, 50 plus basis points. Um, you know, what has it been normally? Well, uh, before Lehman and before the crisis, it was close to 2%. And therein lies the rub and the question, I suppose, for Chairman Powell, what's the new real interest rate, not only for a 10-year, but for Fed funds? I, I think uh, they're targeting a 0% real rate for Fed funds, which might mean 
if we had 2% inflation, a 2% Fed funds rate, that's you know, perhaps six months away with two hikes up to yeah. uh, 2%. But nonetheless, it, it goes along with what the market was expecting. And now, uh, perhaps with these wage gains, uh, a little bit more. Bill, I want to talk to you about some of the price action in the Treasury market this morning off the back of these numbers. Coming into 2018, big consensus positioning around a flatter yield curve. I'm seeing a steeper curve on a session so far. How do you think about that steeper curve at the moment, Bill? Is that just a consensus unwind of a big crowded trade for a flatter curve? Or is that a fundamental rethink about the shape of this curve through 18, through 19? Well, I, I, I've never been an advocate of a flatter curve from this point forward. Admittedly, the curve has flattened substantially over the past few years, but you know, many are expecting the 10-year and the 30-year to flatten and to maybe for the 10-year to go higher because it always has. I don't think in this particular case because we see inflation moving higher, which is what the Fed wants, and you know, the longer-dated treasuries are inflation-sensitive uh, compared to short-term rates. And so, um, you know, I, I think we go through this cycle, this mini-cycle. It's a bear cycle, like I talked about, you know, several months ago. But I think we go through this cycle in a relatively mild fashion, notwithstanding today's action, but in a relatively mild fashion in which the curve, you know, stays not steep, but stays uh, positive. And that would be, for me, a 210 uh, spread of about 45 to 50 basis points. So, so not a not a flattening. Bill, last time we spoke, we talked about what higher rates could eventually mean for credit. And you expressed where you were positioned around high yield. You expressed the short position there. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are at the moment, because we've had a significant repricing in treasuries and in bonds, yet I don't see credit stress in high yield and investment grades. I still see spreads really tight. Are you surprised by how resilient credit has been despite the pickup in treasury yields? Yeah, they're, they're really tight, Jonathan, but they, they have widened, to be fair. I, I look at the HYCDX, and, uh, you know, they've, they've uh, spread out by about uh, 10, 15 basis points. And the logic there is, is that uh, high-yield companies will have to pay more for their money, and they have a substantial amount of bonds to roll or to, uh, you know, replace when others mature. Yeah. Typically, high-yield companies issue at the five-year area, and so in 2018, 19, and 20, they're going to be faced with narrowing spreads in terms of margins and higher yields, and so that's why it affects uh, high-yield bonds. I, I think they're going to continue to widen. I mean, I just want everybody to notice this on Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg Television worldwide that John Farrow there was asking a sophisticated question for his wonderful show, The Real Yield. He was That's a shameless plug. Of 12 noon today. <laughs> I know John Farrow was doing that. I'm sorry, Bill Gross. That was way too Bond-like. But what we're going to have, Bill Gross, oh. is every month, it, every month, Bill Gross, we're going to have bond prices go down. At what point does the retail investor or the smaller institutional account panic. They don't listen to you. They don't listen to your good competitors. And they're going to say, wait, bond price down, I'm getting out. How close are we to that? Well, I think we're getting there, Tom. Uh, you know, on a month-to-month -month basis, they're losing money and probably have for the last two or three months. And uh, investors don't like to lose money. They prefer cash, right? Or even cash in a mattress, I suppose. But, um, you know, it's a short period of time. I, I would say that investors, bond investors, should expect to earn nothing in 2018 and maybe 
you know, with a minus sign in front of it, typically that doesn't happen because, you know, with higher yields in the past, it's been the yields that have compensated for the price declines. But now, um, you know, in, in terms of going up by 20 or 30 basis points in the last month, you know, for the 10-year, that basically implies a 2% price decline. And that's an uh, that requires an annual income of, uh, you know, uh, well, coupon clipping in order to compensate. So I, I think retail is going to be sensitive now from this point forward, certainly after this report. Okay, I, that's a really important statement. Would you suggest as being unconstrained at Janus that dividend growth is an alternative to bond clipping to a flat or negative return this year for bond investors? Oh, sure. Unconstrained and certainly Janus unconstrained, uh, you know, can, can be unconstrained. And, and we've been, because I've been forecasting higher interest rates and lower bond prices, you know, we've been short duration as opposed to positive duration. Typically, total return funds, you know, are forced to monitor what's called the Barclays Aggregate Index, which has a duration of five or an average maturity of about seven or eight years. Unconstrained can go the other way. And so we've been basically a minus two year of duration for the last month or two and I think you can see that in the performance so yeah when you have a bear market you want to go unconstrained because it gives you the flexibility well, to go minus as opposed to plus Bill Gross as always thank you for your attendance today we greatly appreciate on short notice your attendance with Chair Yellen's historic uh, final meeting a few days ago on the Fed Day Mr. Gross again with Janice Henderson Let's bring in Julia Coronado, the president and founder of Macro Policy Perspectives. Julia, thank you very much for being with us. Um, all right, we got the headline numbers. I'm wondering, is there anything specific that you want to point out? Because my question to you is, I know you spent a lot of time looking at the shadow labor force and particularly uh -huh. women in the labor force. Uh, you can go with the big, you know, 200,000 print or you can tell us about shadow labor force. Well, look, I think actually one of the most significant things of the report is the wage growth that we're seeing. So it's, you know, not like it's skyrocketing, but it's picked up to 2.9%. We haven't really hit 3% yet this cycle. So to me, the news today is that there's finally some warming up in wage growth. It's not that broad-based, but it's there. And, um, and, and that's good. And I think on the shadow labor force front, the unemployment rate held steady. The participation rate of the prime age workers continues to improve. So, um, you know, it is a, it's a good labor market. It's bringing people back and it's starting to finally deliver wage gains for workers. All right. And will that be uh, enough to make it to a 3% productivity re uh, rate or is that still uh, unrealistic? Well, um, that depends on the drivers of growth. I mean, last year and actually still in this report, we had some of the productive sectors, that is um, manufacturing uh, and mining, uh, make good, solid contributions. So that bodes well for productivity, but um, really doesn't change the overall trend that we've come off the lows, but it's a pretty subdued uh, productivity. Um, picture for the U.S. When does this translate into accelerated inflation? Well, you know, the Phillips curve is flat, so the translation from wage growth to pricing 
is 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 tenuous at best. Uh, so I wouldn't draw the line from the yeah. wage gains that we've seen to higher core inflation, but at least it's supportive. You're you're a, yeah. you're less worried about downward pressures from this given this report. Right. Here's a key question, and this locks into where potential GDP is, the run rate of the economy, our demographics, our productivity. Do you have a year-over-year wage growth statistics where things unwind? I mean, we talk about unemployment, 4.1%, but does Julia Coronado at 2.9% year-over-year say, wow, at 3 or 3.2 or 3.4, things change? Do you have that number in your head? You know, it's definitely whatever that number might be. It's it's both the the rate and the speed of acceleration. So if we look at sort of the chart of this wage uh, picture, it's still a very gradual acceleration. Yeah. That makes you much less worried than if it was a hockey stick. Uh, and we have seen mm. that. The last expansion, we saw average hourly earnings accelerate pretty sharply. And people always wonder, are we going to hit that? non-linear part of the Phillips curve. This looks linear. So there's nothing right. worrisome here that says, oh my gosh, the it's, Fed needs to slam on the brakes. This no... is more like, finally, we're getting what we wanted to see and expected to see. Do you see how Julia goes quadratic on us? On I n- noticed that linear. She's linear and then she's <laughs> non-linear. And coming up, folks, Julia Coronado will go quadratic with Dr. Coronado. We could even go log quadratic. Would that oh, be cool? Oh boy, that means I got to get my GPL out. That's your GPL charts. GPL charts, yeah. Good. That's what I My, use, courtesy of Tom Keene. Michael Barr's here with his Kufel and Esser slide rule to be sure we get through the next section as well. We'll continue with Dr. Coronado. Always good to have her. Wonderful to have her with Nora Rubini this morning. She survived the Bitcoin questions as well. We are speaking with Eric Brynjolfsson. He is a professor at the MIT Sloan School of Management and also director of the MIT Initiative on the Digital Economy. Professor Brynjolfsson, what can artificial intelligence or machine learning currently do better than human beings? Well, it's very good at classifying and prediction. Um, So things like you mentioned earlier, reading x-rays or recognizing our faces. Um, they can do that at human or superhuman levels, and that means that uh, radiologists are going to have to focus on other parts of their jobs. They can also recognize uh, speech and language at a level close to human levels, and now they're being able to make decisions about things like hiring, parole decisions, credit decisions, where to place ads, uh, as well or better than humans. What are the kinds of jobs that artificial intelligence will not be able to do because of the very way that it is actually put together and learns? So I think it's best to think at the task level rather than the job level. Almost every job will have some components that are affected by machine learning, but almost every job will have significant parts that are not affected. The parts that won't be affected are those that involve creativity and large-scale problem-solving, even just asking the right questions. Machines don't know how to do that. Also, interacting with other people, you know, emotional intelligence, teamwork, motivating, caring for people. There's uh, lots and lots of jobs and tasks that, that primarily do that kind of work. Now, last point to you, uh, Professor Robert Gordon, uh, the noted economist and uh, professor at Northwestern University, uh, he has spoken in the past about the era of big innovation is over and that U.S. economic growth could slow as a result. 
What is your response to that? Bob is a dear, dear friend. We've known each other for 25, 30 years. We often have dinner together. I agree with him on so many things. This is one we fundamentally disagree about. Um, I think we are just in the early stages of the, uh, the biggest set of innovations ever to hit humanity, probably. And uh, it's going to uh, affect almost every industry. But it's hard to make those kinds of predictions just by looking at economic data. The recent data have been, I think, kind of disappointing when it comes to productivity. You have to look at the underlying technologies, mm -hmm. like the examples I just described to you. And when I look at them, I see almost every part of the economy being transformed. Eric Brynjolson, thank you so much for the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. We now turn to uh, Professor Scott Soshnick, uh, not in Minnesota. He's in New York, co-host of Bloomberg Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio. 8 p.m. tonight, 11 a.m. Saturday as we stagger to Sunday in the Super Bowl. Scott, uh, as we get to your guess and, you know, the way you're taking it this year, I was in London and I didn't have the football game, so I watched the highlights on YouTube, which is incredible. It's like 12 minutes of both teams' highlights. It wasn't like sappy highlights. And I was blown away by the execution of the Patriots. Like, Are these Patriots different than the old Patriots? No, look at you, you're like a millennial. Like if I didn't know you, if I wasn't I know. looking at you right now, I'd be like, "How old is Tom? Is he like 24?" No, but but I but I watched Watch 29. Like, I YouTube. thought they did a great YouTube highlights, 12 minutes long of every key play. But no, this is not a different Patriots team. This is really a testament to what they do. If you think it's lucky or if you think Precisely. that this is just Tom Brady, they have the best quarterback in the NFL, yeah. so you can do this. Great stat Michael Barr and I talk about on the show. 18 undrafted free agents are on this team. Now, if you know about the NFL and how tight you have to manage the salary cap, if you can get 18 players, which is an enormous sum, on your roster who are undrafted free agents, you don't have to pay those guys the big bucks. Those are right. guys who'll play pay play for just a, a a paltry amount, so you can then do other things. But the execution of it, if to a non-football person like me, is it unique to the Patriots? Is it the new pro football? What's unique? Which is it? What is unique to the Patriots is the motto of "Do your job." They bring in players who may not be the fastest, the biggest, the whatever, but they have a unique skill set, yeah. one skill that that team needs at that position. And Michael Barr, this is unlike the Detroit Lions? Oh, yes, gosh, yes. I, the New England Patriots, that's why they got guys like Mike Gillisley, where they can find the talent from other teams and say, hey, wait, they're not done yet, and they find these running backs, and they're very good at it, so... You want to jump in on this conversation? No, too? I mean, with experts like well, Scott here, here's and a point uh, you'll like Mr. This. Barr. One of my pals happens to be one of the best lacrosse players in the world, Paul Rabel. He plays in MLL, he's on Team USA, but he's a great lacrosse player. And we all know Bill Belichick likes lacrosse. His daughter was a coach in college. He played. You know what he's told Paul? If you want, you're smart, you're tough, you're fast. Paul has never played football. He said, you'll be my starting safety right now if you want to play football. He recognizes the skill set transfers. Right. And he recognizes the intelligence <clears throat> of the athlete matters. 
Very quickly as we get to your show, one more general question. Next year, is this Belichick's last game coaching? Is this where Brady says enough? Boy, I know they're downplaying this disagreement stuff, but the offensive coordinator's gone, the defensive coordinator's gone, and perhaps the most telling thing is that Bill has let them interview for those jobs and has promoted them to those teams for those jobs. That's something he's never done before. You have to wonder if he wins right. and say, enough, I'll do something. Michael else. Barr, Can- tell us about the show very quickly here. Tell us about the show. We got a guy that's on location experiences, the CEO. He will be on. He will talk about all the behind-the-scenes stuff. John Collins and what's happening at Minneapolis. Michael Barr, thank you so much. Scott Soshnick. Scott Soshnick, co-host of Bloomberg Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio, 8 p.m. tonight, 11 a.m. Saturdays. Mr. Soshnick spends more time in unnamed ice hockey rinks than anyone I know. They didn't even tell you who they think is going to win. Oh, no, excuse me. Come on. Scott. Who's going to win? I I cannot see going against the Patriots. Okay. Scott Sasha, thank you so much. Michael Barr, thank you. I know the Detroit Lions are going to win, Scott. Uh, Michael Barr, I understand that. One of these years. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.